Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always here with Managing Editor and, well, he just does so much more than that, Richard Hill. Yes, you keep me very busy, and uh, it's a it's a most wonderful thing. So, g'day, Matt, and hello every, to everybody. We're we're here again, and we've got uh, we're off to um, uh, where are we off to? Boston. We're off to we're off to the US. Anyway, we're, we're off to the US. We're, we're, we travel around the globe so often we don't know where we're going. We don't know where we are. But um, but what have we what have we got going at the Science of Psychotherapy at the moment? Your your bookshelf needs lightening up. What's happening there? Oh yes, there? Uh, yes. So I thought that uh, we might be able to share some of our bookshelf with uh, therapists, books that have served us well. And so I'm giving away some books. Uh, often we'll get, uh, you know, some review copies from, you know, different publishers and that. So I've got a few extra copies on my shelf. And uh, these are books that are just excellent for therapists. And so we're giving some away. Yeah, so keep an eye out for things that come through, and uh, we'll enjoy sharing the sharing the, the knowledge and, and the wisdom. But who have we got with us today, Matt? Yes, yeah, so today we are crossing over to talk to Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, and he's Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University, and he teaches on topics related to psychiatry, law, ethics, neuroscience, and society. He's also got a private practice, and he primarily focuses on substance and other addictive disorders. And so we're going to talk to him about addiction. So it's such an important topic. And and he's really, he's got a book coming out uh, next year. He's had some really interesting articles. So I'm keen to talk to him. Okay, brilliant. Let's go over and uh, talk to Dr. Fisher. Dr. Carl Fisher, welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. So great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me and for uh, inviting me in to talk to your community. Uh, it's a pleasure. Richard here. So uh, we're both here going to grill you and find out all this uh, really interesting stuff. I, I, we always find it fascinating. People connect with us and we communicate and uh, and then find, a, uh, I said to you before, you know, a treasure trove of, of really interesting and fascinating stuff. But your work is um, a lot to do in the area of addiction. You, as we said, you're an associate professor at Columbia and looking at your papers, there's a lot of a lot of diversity in the approach you do, but this area is, um, is what's important. So can you give us a bit of a background, a bit of a, a fill-in about, uh, you know, where you came from and how this became your fascination or your, your interest and your work? Well, it's unavoidable in my view, to look at addiction across the clinical perspective. And I, I wasn't immediately focused on it when I started my medical school training and my my work in psychiatry, but I just kept on coming back and back against uh, problems with not just substance use disorders, but people struggling with other addictive behaviors and just the feeling of being out of control. And it, you know, it led me back to something that was really important in my own early life. Both of my parents were alcoholics and I started to notice that I was avoiding that a little bit in my practice, uh, but it wasn't avoidable. And um, it was really incumbent on me in the type of work I was doing, especially when later I went into the prison system or just started working in more of a public psychiatry 
setting to learn more about the way people struggle with really out of control behaviors all the way down to more nuanced sort of everyday addictions with work and sex and money and all the rest. And uh, it's been it's been a wonderful journey to start to learn some of those concrete skills because I think they really they translate to the other the other work because of uh, as I've narrowed in to addiction as a sort of extreme phenomenon, the the further I go, the more I see commonalities with the the rest of human experience and a lot of a lot of problems that I didn't even consider were addictions beforehand. Mm. Now, before we drill down into what you've learned, how you've learned this along the way, you know, has it been just through your, your clinical practice or have you, did you do any specific coursework? How have you been learning? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, I, what I found for myself in my clinical practice is that became a job to think about what are my skills and how am I doing justice by my patients and by my clinical practice to consider that as a, a sort of domain of self-development and practice development and um, not necessarily just draw on my own personal experiences or what I learned five or 10 years ago. Mm. But, you know, that being said, I, I, that's my little disclaimer because I did start with a, a personal commitment to uh, meditation and mindfulness practice before I even went to medical school. Uh, early on, I, I had the good luck to do a fellowship in uh, Seoul, South Korea, and essentially stumbled into their version of Zen meditation practice, which in Korean is called Son. And it was just revolutionary for me personally uh, to to start studying in that world. And then later when I came into medicine, you know, this was when I started getting toward psychiatry and neuroscience. It was like 2005, 2006, and we were really seeing the beginnings of an explosion of mindfulness-related work and manualized treatments for mindfulness. You know, of course, mindfulness-based stress reduction goes back decades, but I think really the past decade or two has been the true explosion in really rigorous and science-based and empirically studied interventions and skills uh, across a whole spectrum of mm. um, mental health interventions. And so seeking out mentors, you know, certainly when I went to uh, psychiatry residency at Columbia University, we didn't have a mindfulness track. It wasn't like we had a, a whole multi-session course. It was still a little young for that, but plenty of uh, supervisors and colleagues who were interested in uh, going to folks for mentorship and then just seeking out the wealth of uh, uh, trainings and practices uh, that people offer um, still sort of early days, but there are wonderful conferences. Uh, there's a Buddhist recovery network that is for both the clinicians and the lay public about working with addictions around not just mindfulness as a specific skill, but the sort mm. of broader repertoire of what you might call Buddhist-infused uh, psychology and psychotherapy. The Mind and Life Research Institute, which is the institute that's famous for uh, bringing the Dalai Lama into conversation with the uh, Western science. They, they have some regular conferences that I've had the, the great honor to attend. So it's really, it's exploding. There's a lot out there nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Can, yeah. I, can I take you back to your Korean experience? Uh, I, I have to admit, I don't know anything about the meditation coming out of Korea. Well, how did that happen and, and what was that experience for you? 
I, I was just interested. I was a book Buddhist, which is a slightly derogatory term that people use sometimes. So I try to shy away from it, but because <clears throat> I think whatever path you get exposed to, whatever is useful is fine. Yeah. Um, but for me, I was just reading books on my own. Uh, and I thought I must have read in some chapter somewhere that it was good to sit with other people. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I went to a temple and I was very orientalist about it. I was coming from New Jersey and I thought, oh, this is going to be so mystical. And I had these visions of a sort of David Carradine kind of like old master who would teach me. And I found a guy from New Jersey oh, wow. <laughs> from probably half an hour away from where I grew up, but a man who seriously devoted himself to Zen practice ages ago and was now running an international uh, Zen center in Korea. He's not there anymore, but, uh, got the opportunity not just to sit and work on the the sort of specific set of meditation related skills but also integrating it into a sort of ongoing practice of living and how you take it out into the rest of the world and uh it, it was just lovely. It was really... Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And having no idea, I guess, that this is a framework that is going to you know, carry through you through a, a future clinical practice. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. No, at that yeah. point, I thought I wanted to be a surgeon. So I oh, okay. didn't even want to talk to people that much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's always this fascinating thing that that, that we come to. And, and, and in the West, we have this, this habit of discovering something new. But of course, you know, mindfulness and particularly, you know, as you say, with, with uh, meditation, I mean, this is millennia we're talking about. And the Buddhist, a, a dear friend of mine in Singapore, uh, Jeffrey Poe, and uh, he yeah. wrote a number of books on Buddhist uh, psychology. You know, we were talking to him about it. And he said, he said, the trouble of it is, is I am a Buddhist. I've always been one. Uh, my, my father was one. My grandfather was one. My great-grandfather was one. I said, I can go back. And uh, so this is interesting, the way of, of translating it into um, the, the idea of discovering. But then we things need to be changed. And this is the wonders of, of the Dalai Lama. And, of course, as you bring him in, that he was a, he was a great advocate of, of advancing and shifting and changing and adjusting. You're really... Um, to some degree, have you felt a part of this um, of this sort of integration of the of the history into the current thing? How's that been for you? It's such an important question, and it's such an important um, debate. Actually, it's quite rich right now. About uh, the one way that you could frame the question that's coming to my mind is: to what extent can we take meditation and other types of mindfulness practices, abstract them? and insert them into a Western medical context versus how much are they culture and values bound? And is it is it even potentially harmful to try to extract some sort of supposedly secular training uh, from a wisdom tradition? And uh, you know, I, I think to give a, a, an answer definitively on one or the other side would be too misleading. It's such a complex topic, but by the same token, it, it would be it would be misleading to say, absolutely, we can just kind of grab what we need or grab what we think might be useful, because mindfulness was not developed as some sort of brain hack. It was developed as part of a deep investigation into suffering and the nature of suffering and came up through a religious tradition. Yeah. Especially people who are allergic to the notion of uh, religion in the West like to say that Buddhism is not really a religion or it's a science-compatible religion. It's it's a religion because it has a shared culture of values and ethical teachings and um, ontological and epistemological claims about the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can't divorce that. I, I, for, for a practicing clinician, for myself, I think it, it returns back to the question of what what is appropriate and helpful 
to introduce into the clinical encounter. And I think there is a role for introducing one piece of, say, a, a, a mental training skill, but it might uh, it might lead to some of those deeper questions, in which case it really is necessary to be diligent about respecting the patient's values and views and not trying to act as a sort of stealth missionary or a, a sort of um, proselytizer, because that's, yeah. that's definitely not part of the Buddhist tradition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very true. So um, let's dive into addiction and specifically, you know, your approach and your experiences uh, working with addiction and what you've learned. Yeah, well, um, in terms of my approach, I guess that that just makes me think of what happens when a person walks in the room or Mm -hmm. increasingly nowadays, if somebody logs onto a Zoom call and uh, I'm, I'm faced with a question what are you looking to change or how can I help you? And uh, I think of myself as a harm reduction oriented clinician, which just means to me that I meet the person where they are and I start with what their priorities are. So mm-hmm. you, you can imagine two people with identical addiction severities in terms of problems at work or problems in their home or their life falling apart. And one might say, I really need help becoming abstinent. And the other might say, I just want to feel better. And I I don't think we're doing anyone any favors by treating those two people in the same way. Unfortunately, that is the way we often treat people across that severity level, especially if it's involved with the court or some other sort of broader system. Um, But the the real question has to start with what what is your suffering and what what is the thing that you don't have control over and and what are you looking to change? And Mm -hmm. uh, it varies quite a bit. Yeah. Quite a bit. yeah, yeah, and though I mean, you 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 do have a, a book coming out next year called The Urge, which is um, you know a history of addiction. Um, but there's a great quote that I noticed in a, in a couple of the of the comments, and uh, you know we we have heard a lot about addiction as a, a breakdown of of connection and, and engagement. But here you the, the quote is the terrifying breakdown of reason, and so this is a slightly more it's slightly different from this this sort of the sort of right brain type of attachment things to this this sort of left brain can you expand a little bit on that or uh, uh, how that interrelates absolutely i so reason is not the sum total and if anything we're often too focused on reason in the western tradition however uh when when trying to boil down addiction to its essence i think that uh, one of the truly unifying characteristics is the sense of being out of control. Mm. Is a sense of feeling like one's actions and behaviors don't line up with one's previously held intentions. And uh, that goes back all the way to ancient Greek philosophy and to other philosophical traditions uh, in, in uh, the Socratic dialogues that Plato recorded and in Aristotle, they called it akrasia. Uh, which was sometimes translated as incontinence, which I think is a sort of funny word to apply to it. Um, But it it refers to the sense of not being able to hold that intention or not being able to carry through with it. And that's that's often when somebody has severe addiction, that's that's usually um, how they come into the office. They say, I really feel like I want to stop drinking or using. And I've written it down in my journal and I've made the promise to my partner and I've tried to throw out all the bottles and, and still somehow mystifyingly, I find myself back where I started. Why does that happen? And how do I get help with that? And that's the breakdown of reason mm-hmm. that I'm thinking of, that it seems as if they've, they've made that rational and clear commitment and yet cannot 
uh, hold to it. And, and how that happens and why that happens, that can be uh, extremely varied and diverse. Um, it, it often gets back to that point that you mentioned about a, a breakdown in uh, connection or alienation or dislocation or a lack of meaning and purpose in one's life because of structural factors, uh, certainly everywhere, but especially in the United States, uh, racism and systems of oppression and other sorts of uh, economic or sociological problems people might have. So um, the fact that it, it, it sort of um, triangulates on this experience of reason and irrationality uh, mm -hmm. certainly mm -hmm. doesn't preclude any of those other uh, yeah. factors from being important. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Oliver Morgan, who we, we've talked to a number of times and has become a, a good friend, you know, he, he talks about uh, addiction as an attachment disorder. Um, how have you found, does, does that sit with you? I think it's often an attachment disorder. I think mm -hmm. for any theory or any uh, summation that somebody has, any grand sort of unified um, explanation for addiction, there's always the uh, exception that proves the rule. Yep. <laughs> so uh, there, there's certainly people who who might have grown up in, in a lovely setting and had great early childhood attachment experiences and seemed to have no predisposing psychological or biological issue, and yet they still somehow develop an addiction. Um, so, I, you know, I wouldn't generalize, but I think that's the perspective, the notion of addiction as an attachment disorder that's increasingly lost, especially from mainstream medicine. And by medicine, I mean physicians and people who deal in medications and folks who set policy often. Uh, that um, the, the issue of relationship is so crucial to addiction, it's relationship to others, relationship to behaviors, relationship to the, the, the internal parts of oneself, or relationship to uh, urges and expectations and one's own experience of suffering. And yeah. uh, uh, that's, that's an important corrective against the notion that addiction is just a, a disease that's been visited upon us by biology, that a drug is the thing that causes the addiction. Mm. Because what that does is it, it just uh, eliminates any individual's experience of choice or agency or self-authoring, which is often um, so crucial, not just in the, the understanding, but the treatment. Yeah, and that, yeah, and that sense that it's a, it's a drug that takes you out of it too, so that medication-based thing. And you, you actually make a big point of, of um, uh, trying and utilizing other methods. We've already talked about sort of mindfulness and meditation, but uh, you also talk about yoga. What's, what are some of these um, uh, approaches? Is, is, it, uh, is it an individually-based um, uh, decision that you make about the sorts of things you bring in and when you bring in, but uh, you have a wide uh, you know, range of of offerings that you give your clients. Absolutely, it's often individual. I, I will say it's not a it's not just happenstance that many of the um, formal psychotherapeutic and medical interventions come as part of a group treatment. And so, even though it's highly individualized, people get a great deal of strength and support from learning these practices in a group. Mm. Uh, specifically for addiction, there's there's one called More. There's a, another quite good one called uh, mindfulness-based relapse prevention, uh, which is uh, it, it, many of these things are, are taught in a group context precisely because it can be hard to sit with one's urges and experiences and emotions, and that that relates especially to the, to the, the sort of stereotypical view of mindfulness practice of just sitting meditation. Um, but whether or not somebody is in a group, it's it's important to find other little 
entry points. I had a supervisor who said once, it's like, it's like trying to land a helicopter in a swamp. You just need that one patch of dry land. And I think about that all the time because for one person, they might not be able to sit with their um, negative feelings and urges and intrusive anxiety. And so you need to find some sort of daily informal practice. And there's actually some, some recent research that suggests that it's the informal practice outside of the sitting meditation that's more important mm. uh, for the, mm. the benefits, especially in an addiction context. So whether that means finding a spot in someone's daily routine that's consistent and making that a dedicated mindful walking path. You know, back when people used to commute more, we would say, you know, you've got a 10 minute walk from the subway to your apartment. Let's make sure that that's always mindful. Um, mm-hmm. No offense, guys, but no podcasts, no, no music, <laughs> no nothing. Just take yeah. a 10 minute pause. Um, yeah. At other points, uh, it might be a kitchen practice. I've, I've seen multiple people. The kitchen is really important to yeah. not just um, be quiet with it, but to stay with every activity, to open and close every cabinet with full awareness and watch it all the way through. And mm. that can be a very powerful uh, form of practice that, that translates to when somebody is waking up at 2 a.m. beset by urges and cravings and thinking, I can't sleep, I just need one more drink, uh, whatever. That's, that's, it's all part of the same mix. Okay. So that's that's very much uh, making sure that you're engaging your prefrontal cortex in the moment, being aware of what everything that's happening around you. That's the sort of mindfulness you're talking about. That's important. I think you know the the prefrontal cortex and its relationship to other brain areas is really rapidly developing, and um, an important set of scientific hypotheses that uh, need more exploration. Um, I think in in a certain way, the, the first generation of neuroscientific investigation into addiction relied a little too much on this sort of combative model of the sort of logical prefrontal cortex trying to suppress or control the bad negative urges. And that, that in a certain way is too simplistic. Um, and I don't think that's what you were trying to say, by the way. I just bring it up because yep. um, I think that's a common sort of uh, lay general understanding of what the prefrontal co- cortex does. It has an intuitive appeal. Like only if I could strengthen my control, I could just take this negative part of myself and squish it down into a, its little domain. And then I would be able to do what I need to do. But uh, um, there's a lot of work right now. And um, uh, Judd Brewer at Brown is doing a fair bit of this work about um, the posterior cingulate cortex, mm-hmm. uh, which is a part of the brain that's commonly associated with the self um, and specifically self-referential ideas about what you need or what I want and craving. And those types of feelings like cravings are associated with increased activity in the posterior cingulate cortex. And there are certain contemplative and meditative uh, interventions that appear to lower the activity in that brain area, uh, which to me suggests that what we need to do is not so much like ramp up our control, but actually take a step back to let go and to let go of that, that sense of self-referential processing and mm. um, to, to relax in a way. Uh, right. It's interesting because that, that as you go down the midline, you, you're look, talking about default mode network, that, that mm. sort of aspect. But then also that posterior cingulate is relevant in the context of the salience network. And, and so all, all these things, because you, you came in uh, with a bit of energy uh, or get, but with, I don't know how 
whether you were noticed before or after, but certainly the one that uh, seems to be noticed is a Nautilus article in about 2007 or eight or something, uh, where you were talking uh, against willpower, you know, sort of uh, it was, uh, and that, that got a lot of notice at the time. Was it really so difficult to convince people or were they, uh, has this, and has this changed rapidly, this uh, shift in perception that you're talking about? Absolutely. It was, it's hard to convince other people. It's hard to convince myself that willpower is not as important as we assume. I, I was interviewed on a radio show there, and I don't know if this was a gotcha moment or just neither me nor the interviewer realized, but he said, what do you struggle with regarding willpower? And I said, oh, you know, I, I eat too much ice cream. Uh, <laughs> I, the whole point of the piece was that willpower is... Um, uh, too general and a harmful and misleading concept because we we treat it like a wastebasket. We roll up a bunch of more specific and more useful cognitive and emotional tasks into the into this one monolithic idea of willpower. Uh, and it, I think that's a really important clinical intervention sometimes just to tell someone. My red flag always goes up when someone says will or willpower uh, to to say, what do you mean by that? Let's talk about what you mean by willpower, because for one person, it just means I had a craving in the moment and I couldn't stop myself from doing it. In the other, it means that my intentions shifted. And on Tuesday morning, I thought that I would be on a diet and Tuesday afternoon, I had a piece of pie. Uh, and those are two very different uh, cognitive experiences. Yeah. Now, I've got a burning question, and that's, that's about pharmaceutical intervention and where you stand about you know, drug intervention. Where does that sit in your practice? Well, well, for addiction specifically, we're in a funny situation where pharmaceuticals are rarely the whole story, but they're also simultaneously vastly, vastly underutilized. And I think we've lost the, the middle ground in between. We've lost that sort of common sense middle ground where um, medications for substance use disorders are often necessary and life-saving, but they're not sufficient. Uh, because it's so ideologically charged, people find themselves polarized into camps where one camp says it's not real sobriety or it's not real recovery and it's better to be off of medications. And the other camp <clears throat> often advocating for policy changes that um, increase access to these life-saving medications say, or at least imply that it's the, the only thing necessary, that if only we had enough uh, suboxone or buprenorphine or if only we had enough methadone, then our addiction problem would go away. And that's that's a problem that stretches back decades, especially in the U.S. There's a, a, a professor at Columbia, uh, Gerald Clerman, who, who had this great uh, dichotomy between uh, pharmacological Calvinism versus psychotropic hedonism. And right. the, the notion is that we, we, we either act as if suffering is somehow virtuous and we should we should avoid anything that would help, or we say, forget it. Let's do anything. Let's just be hedonists and use whatever takes away our suffering or appears to take away our suffering. Um, so to get back to your question, uh, psychopharmaceuticals are often really important and crucial, especially in opioid use disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really the only intervention that has been shown to reduce death. So it's really important to stabilize people and get them onto often suboxone, but also other interventions like long-acting naltrexone. Uh, just so that they can show up and get to the next appointment and lose that sense of just overwhelming fear that's attached to the uh, overdose process. Uh, there's also important roles for medications for alcohol use disorder as well. 
also terribly underutilized. But just like a lot of the rest of the recovery process, that's often the first step. That's like that's like signing up for the marathon. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, mm-hmm. good, do it. And then you have to run the marathon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, we talk about this, uh, uh, this a lot. In, what I, I describe it in some of my stuff as creating a therapeutic consciousness or creating a state where therapy is, is viable. And, uh, and I, I heard someone put it nicely when they, they dealt with a lot of homeless people in relation to addiction and various, various things. And he said, you've, you've got a homeless person coming in there for addiction. There's no point buying them a sofa until you mm-hmm. found them somewhere to live. So yeah. getting them into that sense of balance and some, some positive state of homeostasis as different from this dysfunctional sort of uh, uh, state that, that you describe occurs when they've got those urges and addictions and fears and all those things, that's not a great place to start from. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I mean, there's many psychopathologies that do need that sort of intervention at the outset just to be bring the person into the, the possibility of psychological intervention. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the use of uh, psychopharmacology is often a good laboratory and a good reflection of other thoughts about the self and thoughts about recovery. So there's often so much shame and guilt attached to the use of medications. And it, it, it's important to investigate if somebody really has a lot of um, negative feelings about themselves as if I, I should be able to deal with this without medications or what does it say about me that I am still on this medication, that's not a blank check to just continue medications indefinitely, but it's it's often very rich to go deeper yeah. and look at what sort of attitude that reveals about health and wellness, about yeah. um, what it means yeah. to be dependent or what it means to take care of oneself. And uh, <clears throat> that's why I'm, I'm glad to be able to do that, to work in both psychotherapy and with medications. But I think that's something right. that uh, folks who do not prescribe medications can really readily explore and uh, is, is often really crucial to uh, one of the key tasks in somebody dealing with addiction is, is what is my recovery? What does mm. recovery mean to me? Mm. Um, what, is, what is my version of a good life? What is my version of flourishing? What am I working toward? Yeah. Uh, because if somebody's goal is, you know, I've been on Suboxone for two years, I want to get off Suboxone because I think that means that I'd be a somehow better version of myself. That's fine. But then the necessary next step is, well, what needs to be in place for that? Mm-hmm. And when you got off that medication, even if you did have some sort of discontinuation struggles with it, what would be there that would be better than today? And yeah. How can we yeah. work toward it? Yeah. And have you built the scaffolding? Yeah. To remove the the drug. Can, can I ask also, what what's the most challenging type of addiction that you, you deal with? Oh, that's tricky. You know, I, were, <clears throat> I would hesitate, you know, the, uh, the advocates and the um, members of different recovery communities would really be upset with me if I said <laughs> for various reasons. Both Set up, because what we got I'd, be, I'd be implying that they were somehow sicker, but also I think there's a lot of like pride associated with beating the tough ones. Um, you know, I, I could say opioid use disorder because that has such a high rate of overdose yes. and death. And that, of course, is is more and more high stakes as uh, fentanyl and other sorts of poisons essentially get into the drug supply. But I could also say eating because mm. people mm-hmm. who have a, what they themselves consider to be an addictive relationship to food, um, they can't choose abstinence. They have to live in that, that messy middle ground between choice and compulsion and navigate their relationship. And uh, that, that can be a very, very challenging and sometimes life-threatening. If you look at, say, World Health Organization statistics, mm. uh, 
heart disease and cardiovascular diseases and even cancers related to those so-called lifestyle illnesses are extremely high. So it can kill you tomorrow. And that, but and that issue with sugar uh, as, and, and salt, both of them doing these these disastrous things. And the, and the, the best one of the best healing mechanisms that we've seen, and we've examined this in some of the lifestyle stuff of where heart problems have dropped by 60-70% and diabetes by 40-50% and 50% is when there's been a huge economic crisis uh, and mm. Cuba Cuba has got a, a lot of uh, uh, statistics about that and it's quite, it's quite fascinating. Not that we want to actually, you know, to do that to make people well, but it is quite fascinating yeah. uh, how how that affects the, the lack of access to luxury, I suppose, mm. is one of the mm. things. Yeah, and, and like we've just been observing recently with uh, with this virus, you know, obesity and the ability to to tackle a virus is is greatly diminished. So big problem all around. Absolutely, yeah. The the, the sort of knock on chain of causation mm. that it causes, and um, even at a more subtle level, obesity leads to problems with mobility, leads with problems getting out of the house, problems connecting with other people, problems mm. engaging with meaningful uh, life activities can be a real impediment to health and flourishing. Uh, And, you know, obesity, you mentioned obesity. I think, you know, there was a proposal in the American Journal of Psychiatry that obesity be regarded as a mental disorder by the head Mm -hmm. of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, Nora Volkow. And I think that that's, you know, an important and provocative line of questioning to explore. And we have to be careful about just associating obesity with an addictive relationship to food, because there are people who have, uh, you know, what we would call in the standard DSM-5 nomenclature, binge eating disorder, and they appear normal weight. And there are people who might be obese who don't necessarily have any sort of disordered relationship with food necessarily, getting back to this question of relationship and attachment. Uh, and so that that's a place that is sometimes an addictive sort of process can be hiding in plain sight is when when somebody is is struggling with their eating and it doesn't even necessarily manifest in that way. I've had that experience in my own clinical practice where um, whether or not somebody is in recovery from a more severe substance use disorder, we peel back the layers of the onion a little bit and then we we discover that I feel out of control when it relates to X and Y and Z money sex, relationships, whatever. Mm, yeah, and it manifests elsewhere. I just want to, want to jump in that we're talking about body movement activity. Um, you know, we talked about meditation and mindfulness. I, I just, one of the things, uh, it's not really a clean segue, but uh, I'm trying to make it so. The, but into this area of yoga is one of the things that you just specifically mentioned. And then, and that will jump into people's minds because Bessel van der Kolk has been talking about yoga as an important process in, in dealing with trauma and, uh, you know, complex trauma. Uh, recoveries. So mm. this uh, this type is it specifically yoga's activity just as some of those frameworks of uh, of what that practice uh, brings out for people working as you're working with them in addictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yoga I think can be really powerful and helpful in the and it it can occur on multiple levels. So in the same way that someone could come to mindfulness from say just an app or they could come to it from a very deep and considered involvement with the wisdom tradition in the same way people can come to yoga uh, through a variety of different paths and they're all valid and they're all great starting points. So at the, at the most straightforward level, somebody could go to any random community yoga class or a gym and have the experience of having to put their phone away <clears throat> in itself, often a major victory. 
and then be quiet by themselves staying even among other people with with one's own body and with one's own mind and have the experience of feeling their body on a mat in a in a safe space and that can be really wonderful and the thing that's often missed in contemporary yoga practice is that it was a deep and really varied approach to different forms of mental training where asana practice the physical postures is only one of the limbs and there are many other limbs. Another one that I think, especially because of the coronavirus, is getting more attention is breathwork. And uh, breathwork has very deep roots. I, I think you could argue that there, we wouldn't have any breathwork today if it weren't specifically for uh, yoga-inspired forms of breathwork. And uh, that can be so powerful for mm-hmm. folks just to, to get a sense of, A, simply just being able to be aware of their breath, but B, being able to make changes in their breath and immediately induce a change in their autonomic nervous system, in their level of stress reactivity, in various directions, not just stress reduction, but also focus and concentration. It gives people such yeah. a powerful suite of tools that can help them between sessions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned there uh, about uh, putting your phone away. Have you encountered much in the way of uh, addiction to technology? Yeah, absolutely. There can be, I I think it's useful to think about addiction to technology in a very granular way because people use those terms interchangeably sometimes, internet addiction or cell phone addiction or smartphone addiction. And um, that's not really what the relationship is to. It's not Mm -hmm. to the internet as some sort of abstract network floating above our heads. Uh, Some people have an addictive relationship to a specific game or a specific type of interaction uh, and, you know, back when some of the scientific literature was getting up and going, World of Warcraft was a really important one. And we've seen that shift so many different times. In the States, the National Basketball Association, they, I think, banned Fortnite for a time because their players right. were staying up late before games. And mm. uh, that's a consideration. And wow. video game addiction uh, is an entirely different set of considerations from, say, for example, pornography addiction or when people feel like they have out-of-control sexually-related behaviors. Even pornography is probably too narrow of a term because for some people, uh, it's less about experiencing some sort of sexually titillating material and it's more about, say, a search or it's more about, say, the process of engaging with the with the online forums. And mm. uh, in that way, it's more like gambling. People describe sort of being in the action is a common mm-hmm. gambling term when, when people feel caught up in the chase in the pursuit. And you can easily imagine how the internet lends itself to that when people yeah. are looking for a specific type of content or uh, issues like that. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say in couples therapy, the thing that seems to come up the most um, in, in my experience is an addiction to social media. Mm. You know, that um, you just cannot disconnect from from Facebook or, or Twitter or whatever it might be. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a big one. Yeah. And I would put in the same category, possibly at least just <clears throat> the image that brings to mind of, say, like a husband and wife, or it could be husband and husband, whatever, um, at a pool party, and one can't put down the phone, and the other is yep. getting ignored, and there, mm-hmm. there starts to be issues of disrespect and ideas yep. about the relationship and how a spouse should be to another. Like a, a crucial question in all sorts of addictive behaviors is, is what is that doing for you? What is this behavior mm-hmm. looking to satisfy? Mm-hmm. And uh, in social media, for example, you can imagine uh, somebody who's looking to soothe the pain. They're just looking for a distraction from an experience they, they feel is intolerable, uh, or they could be looking to construct a different self 
because they they feel like their current self is not acceptable in some way. Uh, or or it could be um, looking for love and connection, not necessarily the sexual kind, but some sort of, uh, I hesitate to say this word because it sounds a little judgmental, but counterfeit connection mm-hmm. in the absence of some sort of meaningful connection in one's daily mm-hmm. life, uh, looking for something to sort of somewhat scratch the same itch through TikTok or Instagram or what have you. Sure. Mm. Yeah. But we've we've covered a, uh, an extraordinarily fascinating uh, and very clinically relevant, and I know that was one of your intentions, and I think you achieved it beautifully. Um, this sort of talk on on this very important subject, and then we've we've also delved into some areas that I thought were you know really interesting and surprising. So, uh, and, and I was sitting back having a good listen. So I hope everyone's enjoyed the same. But have we missed something, or is there something that you'd like to just sort of wrap up the the session we've had now? I'll just mention briefly in passing, because I can imagine that your listeners run the whole gamut of different therapeutic practices that uh, working with people, even with severe addictions, is some of the most satisfying and rewarding and positive experiences I've had as a clinician. It can be frightening sometimes, but uh, the actual rate of recovery is very high. Many, by, by some estimates, the rate of recovery from severe substance use disorder is actually more positive than from other uh, formal mental disorders if you if you follow it out over time. So just simply being there to support someone in their journey as they try to make positive changes is really you know a lovely thing to do and can be very satisfying despite the ups and downs. Um, I'm glad to have that opportunity and it really took some time and some experience and seeing the many different paths that people find to their own personal definition of recovery, but uh, that's not that's not high-level theoretical learning. That's really just mm. the humanistic learning, just being there in the trenches with people and yeah. trying to show up with empathy and attention and care. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, thank you so much for dropping into the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It was uh, great to get to know you. It was wonderful. Uh, you know, thank you so much for inviting me on and uh, for for the work that you do. I love the podcast and I love the, the sort of deep dive and your warm and empathetic nature. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. That's lovely. Okay. Well, we'll see everybody, uh, see everybody next time. Okay. Bye for now. Wow. He was just so, I would love to have him as my therapist. He's so cool. <laughs> and uh, he's really obviously got a lot of centered, uh, he's very centered in his framework, but yeah, intelligent. Uh, I love someone who really knows their stuff, and and he knows what's going on. Uh, uh, so he talks about uh, he's talked about doing his own podcast. Uh, yeah. we'll tune into that. So that'll be uh, keep an eye out, uh, folks, for for that. So just a yeah. great talk. I'll enjoy that very much. Yeah, absolutely. I I really enjoyed connecting with Carl. That was brilliant. And when his podcast does come out, we'll let everyone know. Um, it will be focused on addiction and uh, talking to uh, talking around those topics. So brilliant. Well, uh, thank you everyone for joining us. Now, look, if you do enjoy what we're doing here on the Science of Psychotherapy, we would love to have you as part of the tribe and to become a subscriber to the Science of Psychotherapy. 
where you will have access to a myriad of articles, videos, and so much stuff. Isn't that right, Richard? It's a, it's about a thousand hours of education work. We've got a, a, a over 150 hours of uh, certificated programs mm-hmm. that you can you can use for CEU points at your with your appropriate associations. But this idea that we are trying to propagate that it's just fabulous to get to know about stuff, and mm, we've got right. the, so we've divided things up up into a very accessible way. So come on down, learn some yeah. stuff. We, we enjoy it every day. Yeah, look, if your intrinsic motivation is to learn and to better yourself as a therapist, then we're, we've got a library for you. And not only a library, but you know we're, we've got a lot of scope there to have discussions. So we do want to encourage you to be part of the community and to engage us in discussion about topics on the platform. So please come across, be part of the tribe. We'd love to have you. Fantastic. But uh, for now, I think uh, that's it for the day. Good gosh. That's it for the day. As always, brilliant. Thanks, Richard. And uh, thanks, Dr. Fisher. And thank you for tuning in to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to the scienceofpsychotherapy.com.